If you enter my crackdown writing office, you'll notice a sign hanging above my desk that reads, Jeff Perlman regrets he would not be able to sign his books. And it dates back about oh, 12, 13 years ago when I appeared at a book event with a bunch of authors near my old home in New Rochelle, New York. I was being given some award and the organizers asked if I'd like to have a table to sell books. And I turned it down because it seemed just kind of cheesy and inappropriate. You're honoring me? And I'm going to use that time to make money? Nah, I'm good. Well, I show up and there are like 10 different authors being honored and all of them have tables where they're signing books. Except for me. I just had the sign, which translates to Jeff Perlman is a douche. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang. The podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Robert Garrett, the author of Stringer, a sports writer's memoir. Robert is a former sports journalist who is currently dealing with the shittiness of an ALS diagnosis. This is episode number 278. Let's sing some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. Well, Robert, first of all, thank you for joining me. Let me start by actually asking you for... for People, this is not a visual podcast. It's just a podcast, but I'm I'm looking at you. You're sitting at your seat. You have uh, a device near your mouth. And okay, so what is your physical situation as we speak? Yeah, so I have ALS. So ALS is the one where your muscles just wither away. Um, I'm lucky in the fact that I've had it for 11 years. And basically my arms and legs don't work. I, mean, I, I, I sit in a power chair all day. I work full time. I use dictation software and I use i gave software to work and write my book as well so i can talk and chew and swallow and all that good stuff but i'm not really able to, to get around physically so you know it's one of those diseases where it's just a you don't know how it's gonna end um currently I'm, I'm still able to work i still have a lot of energy you know i still um make a paycheck so that's all that matters right now right well you have a book out called stringer and your dedication you wrote it's december 2020 and i am dying no, not from the coronavirus that is raging unchecked through the country. I have this booger of a disease called AOS. It's the one where your muscles basically wither away. Luckily, and I do mean this, I have a very slow progression. At the time of this writing, it has been almost 10 years since my diagnosis. I am still able to talk, which is how I am writing this book, thanks to some wonderful dictation software. This book is dedicated to my boys, Henry and Walter, ages 12 and 10. There are primarily two reasons. The first, your dad did some pretty cool stuff before you were born. Not that they think I'm uncool, but for most of their lives, I've been declining physically. Thankfully, I was quite able when they were young and relished in all the parenting tasks, such as changing diapers, feeding, rolling around on the floor, and so on. As any parent of adolescents know, it is nearly impossible to look cool in front of your kids. Barack Obama recently did an interview with late night talk show host Stephen Colbert, which he used one of my favorite quotes ever, no man is a prophet in his own land. He went on to say that every night he had dinner with the family at 6.30 p.m. He said he would walk from the Situation Room upstairs to dinner with his wife and two daughters. They were completely unimpressed with him, and he was the president. The second and most important reason is I want my sons to know that sometimes in life, there's a rare intersection of skill and opportunity, and sometimes you just need to take the gamble. It has happened to me many times in my life, meeting the right people or being in the right places and seizing that opportunity. It has led to jobs, promotions, travel, and most importantly, meeting fascinating people. That's how I went from emptying trash at the Tampa Tribune building in Lakeland, Florida, to a seven-year odyssey of writing over 1,200 stories, traveling nearly every highway and back road in Florida, 
and covering everything from shuffleboard to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I'll start with a game story that I handed to the sports editor in October 1995. Enjoy the ride, boys. I love it. Freaking love it. I was wondering, you don't see that many people with your experience writing books about the experience. And that's not to belittle your experience is that you don't see that many stringers and people strung for seven years or eight years say, I'm going to write a, I'm going to write a book about that experience. Right. Did you write this for your kids? Is it, is the number one reason you wrote this with the thinking I have ALS. I don't know what's going to happen in my future. I want my kids to know about this life I had. Yeah, a little bit. And, and selfishly, you know, when you have a disease where you're physically unable, you know, you really look inward a lot, you know, so, you know, like my room, you can't see it, but it's surrounded by, by pictures of my experiences, you know, baseball saves I've been to, or like concerts, um, you know, all kinds of fun stuff I've done in my life. So that helps me kind of, you know, keep my sanity. But the book really was, um, it was for the boys, but also I wanted to tell those stories again. I mean, I, I thought all the stories I wrote were always, I mean, I always looked for like the unique story, the unique angle or the, or the interesting, you know, look or more the human aspect. So all these stories I wanted to share again, um, so there's a little bit of a ruse there with the boys, but, you know, I did want to tell them, hey, your dad was pretty cool, you know, or at least I, I mean, I felt pretty cool at the time. Wait, so my uh, my kids think I'm completely not cool at all and they'd be right in that assessment. It, it sounds like your kids don't feel that way. Your kids are, uh, are relatively OK, okay with dad and his coolness. Yeah. I mean, you know, they they the funny thing is, is they're always like um, amazed that I'm still working, you know, so they're really, you know, they, they're always just amazed that I'm still pick up a paycheck and, you know, and, and I, but, you know, I do that to get them a, a good life and send them on trips. And, you know, so like my wife is really active with them and that's on purpose. So, so they don't, you know, we're not sitting at home here being all depressed because I'm, I'm, you know, dying slowly. Right. So what is your job you do now? Yeah. So I'm a director of training in a software company. We do risk and insurance software. It's super boring, but it's a, it's a fun job for me. Um, that was my tradition out of journalism was going to training because I had, a, I had a good personality and I had like, you know, a, a knack for software. So, you know, I really didn't want to leave journalism, but it was such a dying, you know, I, I, declining circulation, right? We had, you know, uh, the online presence was going up. So it was really looking dim for me. And I, and I had to cut the, you know, cut the cord. Let's go deep into this. Number one, what exactly is it to write a book using iGaze software? Well, it's more of the voice dictation. So you have to dictate the sentence. And if you mess up, you have to correct that word or go back using the iGaze software and, um, like you to put your cursor in the next to the mouse and backspace it. So it's really a challenging as far as a, you know, time thing. That's why it took so long. So I, I would, you know, sit down and start writing with a word document, you know, and I'd have my articles pulled up, you know, and I would cut them and paste them with the iGaze software into the book, you know, so I had, you know, all the pictures you see in there, all the articles. I did all that myself. So I was able to do that and, and give it to my designer, you know, in the order I wanted it to be. How long did it take, Soup to Nuts, to do this all? Uh, well, it was 18 months as far as a year of writing, two months of editing. I hired an editor, um, and then I hired a designer, and that took about three months. So 18 months from, from A to Z. You're, um, you're just this kid in Florida, and you grew up kind of a Buccaneers fan, but you weren't a diehard, diehard sports fan. And yeah. um, you're basically working as a, as, a, as a janitor, an office yep. janitor. And uh-huh. How do you go? How does one go from being an office janitor to being a sports writer? Well, you know, we got lucky in that we had to clean, we had to clean the tax office above the Tribune, which was um, only available during the day because they were so messy they couldn't lock up the sensitive documents. Right, so we came in to clean during the day at lunch, 
And the guy who in the building loved my dad because he was cheap. Um, my dad owned the company, right? He, he bought a quitting company and he wrote my sister and, and, my, and I to, to work with him. So we started doing, doing the trib and the second floor of the trib, the sports department was there. And I just, I, you know, I, the people were really nice. You know, we had to go by and hit their trash and wipe their desks. So we had to talk to them, you know, we had to interact with them and all that. So I just, I got to know them. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty outgoing guy. So it's easy for me to get to know people. And so I finally um, talked to my dad about, hey, you know, I should apply because they always need help covering football, right? Friday football in Florida is a, a way of life, right? So I um, went to the editor and just said, hey, I love to, you know, I, I was a good writer in high school. I was in advanced place in English. You know, I did really well there. So you know, I'd love to be able to cover some football for you part-time. Yep, sure thing. You know, any samples? And I was like, nope. So I ran home and I wrote like a fake game story of a game I watched in high school made up quotes, made up, you know, the story, uh, you know, as best I could, uh, gave it to him and he loved it. So I, you know, I got um, assigned a game with a, uh, uh, you know, a mentor, uh, Kevin Wells, who's a great guy. And we went to the game and there was a fight. Uh, through the handshake line, one of the kids flung his helmet at the other, another one from the team and bashed him in the forehead. And I was like, oh yeah, this is awesome. You know what I mean? Not, not for the kid, of course, he was, he was fine. But, but the whole, the whole experience was just, you know, what a rush, right? You know, we're on deadline. He's calling downtown, like, you know, we need more space. There was a fight, you know, this is a big rivalry game. And so, yeah, that really just, you know, yanked me right in. So this is a Tampa Tribune, just for people who mm-hmm. don't know the reference of Tribune. All right, yeah. so your first article, your first article, Lakeland routes Lake Leeds and Clint's district. And- uh, Oh, shit. Hold on, don't beat yourself up here. The, the dayline is Winter Haven. Lakeland, which started the season one and three, routed Lake Legion. 42 to 13 Thursday to clinch the class 5A district A title. This is just a credit to our kids, like Lake Coach Bill Castle said. Good boy. After a score, I'm doing this to torture you. I know I know you have ALS, but I'm trying to make yeah, it even so harder. After a, scoreless no, first, after a scoreless first quarter, Lakeland drove 68 yards and scored on Keith Price's one yard run. Why? Lake Region's next drive stalled and they punted, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Yeah. Did you have, being serious, did you have any idea what you were doing at all? Did you have some idea or were you just like, oh, I don't know? Um, I had an idea. Um, I, I, I didn't really know. Um, I didn't learn how to consolidate the data better at that time. Like, you know, my first article was all play by play. You know, I, I could have used more stats. You know, I could have used a better quote. You know, but all those things, I just learned on the job. And I, you know, that, that, that's what happened with me was, you know, I had, I, I read a lot of people try to follow their, their kind of formula. Um, but yeah, I had to learn on the job and it was terrifying. You know, it was, you know, that, that article, when I saw it, I was like, Oh God, they, they switched everything around. It wasn't anything like, like, like I wrote it. Right. So it was really hard to be edited that first time. But then I realized, okay, they're helping me out a lot here. So now I knew. And then the, the next gamer was like way better, you know, huge improvement. So I would have been really disappointed at myself if I didn't improve that second time. I might, I might not have gone on, you know, to keep writing. I started my career, my sports career covering, you know, preps. And I was the uh, national Tennessee. And I, I always say, I don't want to brag, but I was the national Tennessee and high school wrestling beat writer. Yeah. That's nice. Uh, pretty sweet. Some wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> pretty sweet. And uh, covered a lot of high school football as well. You write extensively about sort of your, your career covering preps. I thought the book was a beautiful reminder of the joy of covering preps. I feel like we're always working hard to get away from preps. And then you're away from preps and you kind of forget how awesome it was. Um, what did covering preps do for you? And what was the joy of covering preps for you? Um, I love seeing those kids grow and mature throughout the season. You know, my favorite chapters are in the third part of the book, 
that was that like my, my big adventure. That was, you know, state champions. You know, we had a epic playoff run by this Plant City football team that were, they were a cast of characters. Um, that could be, a, that could be a book itself, I think. Um, but, you know, it was a way more fun, um, you know, watching those kids grow and, and, and develop and win. And, um, and, you know, just to see the youth of America was, it was really eye-opening because, you know, here I am, I'm 26. I'm kind of bounding around. I, you know, I didn't have a college degree to know what I was doing, but I was like, so many of these kids are, are smart and switched on and going, you know, going to college. And I'm like, thank God. Right. So it was a, you know, that was a lot of fun to see that development too. Um, but, you know, and, and the innocence is, is, is great because, you know, the, the pro game is so tainted, right? Even college is a little bit tainted too. So just the innocence of, of, of the kids is, is, you know, the, the stories you get out of them is, is better than like the pro sometimes, you know, because they're, they're still learning about themselves. My editor always told me like, you know, they're, they don't choke their kids, you know, they're not paid what, what they do. So don't, you know, so don't ever write about that, write about them that way. Right. We need to be fair to them because they're, they're, they're younger. They're not professional athletes. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I've told this story before. One of the best lessons I ever had in my career was um, I was at the Tennessee and I covered a high school football game and I wrote in my story that the quarterback had an up and down game. His passes were way too up or way too down. And yeah. the number of hate letters yeah. I received. And I was like, what did I do? Like he wasn't very good. And then my editor's like, listen, you, these are kids. They're 17 years old. You can't, you got to go you easy. Yeah. It's a good line though. Yeah, it is a good line. Um, wait, so you have a piece here, Hillsborough getting up to speed. And it was, um, this is from 95. The time for talking about last year has ended for the Hillsborough boys track team. The time to do something about it has started beginning tonight at the class six, eight district five championships at Chamberlain. The mission is to right the wrongs that occurred at last year's state's finals. The thing I love about reading the old prep stories is like, you know, the joy that the kids are getting. Like there's a kid named Shamari McKinsey photograph. Yeah. Love that kid. Yeah. Right. And like, that was almost 30 years ago. And somewhere in a scrapbook in the McKenzie household, Shamari McKenzie, who's probably a dad of two and working at the whatever, like mm -hmm. has this clip somewhere. Did, how much did that mean to you? Or did you even give a shit about that? Well, you know, it's funny because I, it means a lot to me. I mean, like, you know, I always wrote to honor the people, you know, honor their story, you know, tell it the best I can. And, and if I didn't do it right, my interview sucked then, right? You know, you know, we have, we have good interviews about interviews, right? So, you know, it, me it meant a lot when they, not like, you know, I know you, you talk about people liking your articles, you know, if it's fair, you know, but with preps, you don't have that, you know, that, there's, there's not that negative side preps that you have with, with the pros, right? So, um, yeah, I don't, I, I never heard a lot about my articles um, when I was writing. So, you know, if they have them now, that'd, that'd be great because I, I kept all the ones I liked. So, you know, it's, 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 you know, I definitely feel flattered that they would like it or, or keep a hold on to it, read, read it again. And hopefully they, they thought it was written well and it captured the moment. Right. Would you clip your own stories? Like, did you keep binders with your stories? Um, I clipped the ones at first. My mom had every single thing I wrote. Right. She, and she laminated everything too. So I've got like all these shitty little gamers that, you know, that are terrible or these features that are just so one dimensional. So I have all of those. And then at the end, I kept the ones I knew that were, really good. Like, you know, the Madden football chapter, right. I wrote, I, I get to go to Madden football. Um, like, you know, um, the plant city stuff, I kept all that. So you know, I knew I'd, I'd revisit that someday. I love that. That was a, my favorite time as a reporter there. Oh, the Buccaneers stuff for sure. You know, I grew up a group of Buccaneers fans. So 
being able to be in a locker room with a team was just mind blowing. Right. I want to talk to you actually about this sort of uh, transition to writing about pros. You, you had a piece yeah. I just loved. Uh, it was in chapter 11, spring training. And you wrote um, spring training in central Florida means one thing. Spring training baseball is back. There's a grapefruit league in Florida and the cactus league in Arizona. Lakeland was smack dab in the middle of several teams, including the Orioles, Tigers, Indians, and Orioles to name a few. Spring high school sports were just starting. I covered several basketball games, but I was limited because I was still working with dad. One day in the office, Tom asked if I could write some features. And of course, I jumped at the chance. He sent me to Baseball City, just outside of Haines City, which was home of the Kansas City Royals. Tom's exact words were, just give me a feature about any player. A nobody is perfectly fine. All right. So, so basically, you go, you call the Royals, you get the PR guy, you tell him what you're doing. He gets you a credential. And your directive from your sports editor, Tom, is just write about a nobody. Doesn't matter who it is. Write about a nobody. Literally, write about a nobody. Not complicated. Absolutely, yeah. All right. What do you do? Um, I asked the PR guy, hey, who's a good feature idea? Oh, go see this cat over here, right? I walk over. It's Johnny Damon. So little do I know that he is on the cover of the media guide. Number one pick. I, you know, I, I wasn't following Royals baseball at the time, right? You know, I was really not into baseball a lot at the moment. But yeah, so I wrote a feature on Johnny Damon. I take it back to him and I write it and he just loses his mind. And he's like, they're, they're like this is the next George Brett you're writing about, right? So yeah, I totally blew that one. How intimidated were you jumping from preps to doing uh, pro sports? It was tough. I think I wrote about it in the one of the chapters. I really had to tell myself, hey, don't be an idiot. You're, you're going to go cover the Buccaneers. You know, you watch this team your whole life. You know, I, I what I wanted to do was use my fandom as a weapon, right? Because I knew the team inside and out. You know, I knew all the all the um, front office people. I knew the players. So I used that to my advantage, right? But I didn't want to go in there like an idiot and, you know, falling over the team. And, and I never did. You know, I, I was always really fair with them. And if anything, it made me, uh, made me more critical of them when I wrote too. You know, because you, you, can, you can be that way and be honest about it. You know, one of my leads was like, you know, it was, I know it's boring and cliche, but it was, you can take their faces off the milk carton now because like, you know, the books running game is back, right? I do feel like it is a big jump. Like I vividly remember my first time going to a major league clubhouse and being absolutely terrified. I remember my second yeah. time also being absolutely terrified. Right. Um, did you develop a way quickly to not be terrified? Yeah, I stayed uh, right next to Pat, the reporter of the main beat reporter. And then he would, you know, but, but then I knew, you know, you, you find the good guys, right? So, you know, that team had a pretty good culture starting, you know, like Derek Brooks, always a quality guy, John Lynch, great interview, um, the offensive line, always nice guys to talk to. Uh, the defensive line was scary as hell. We had like Reagan Upshaw, we had uh, Warren Sapp, who was, you know, super mercurial, right? Day by day, he's a different person. So I, I didn't go over there that much, but I stayed on, on the offensive side of the ball or the with the skilled players or the offensive line. So I, I knew where to go, where my comfort was. Were there actually guys who, like, you just avoided, like, just scared the hell out of yeah. you? Yeah. Reagan Upshaw scared the hell out of me, yeah. Wait, so why? Was so, I don't know. He was ornery. That's the word I could use for him. Yeah. He seemed ornery. Uh, you know, Sapp was, was tough. Um, but, you know, when he was on, he was on. Like, you know, the Green Bay weeks were great because – he would just rattle off, you know, a million quotes, you know, and there was always a lot of uh, excitement around those times. Wait, so uh, 1997, stopping Packers, mean resolution for the Bucks. New Year's Eve and its tradition were put on hold Wednesday by the Buccaneers. Unlike most seasons past, there's still football to be played in early January. Instead of all anxiety, the Bucks were thinking of, of old Lambeau Field. Oh, uh, people, around, 
What? Wait, I'm actually wait. Let's actually stop there. This is kind of fascinating. All right. I feel like in a way. <laughs> you going through your old clips feels a little bit like torture to you. Oh, it is. Yeah. You know, because, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess I like it, you know, but like a, a writer of your caliber reading my, my work is definitely intimidating. So that's part of it, too. You know, wait, do you, I mean, all right, let's actually go deep in this. I love this. Yeah, sure. Do you. OK, you wrote for many years. You've now written a book. You wrote a book about your experiences. You say to me, a writer of your caliber, blah, blah, blah. Do you do you not view yourself of my caliber? Like, do you do you or of other writers caliber? Like, do you view yourself at a certain level? How do you how do you kind of view yourself as a writer? Um, I think I'm pretty good. You know, obviously the book is um, written. Well, I'm, I'm a little out of practice when I wrote the book. So there's some chapters that I like, some I don't. Um, you know, I, I probably could have gone through and, and edited it again, but, you know, I would have never finished, right? And I'm sure you have the same thing where you're just like, you've right. read the book 16 times and you're like, I, I can't do it anymore. I'm, I'm going to, you know, shoot myself in the head here. So, you know, um, I think I'm a, uh, I think this book is, good i think i think it's a really good book um for a nobody like me that you know i mean even though i did write i sold my i myself like a nobody but yeah i think it's a good book i'm i'm, ha- I'm really happy with it to be honest with you I, I like the way it looks you know it's got that paper kind of a feel to it right it's got the our headlines and it's got the two columns before we continue with two writers slinging yang a quick word from our sponsor hey this is jeff perlman and i'm here with my daughter casey who wants to tell you about dad it's me, Emmett. Casey left for college. This this is Jeff Perlman with my, my daughter, Casey, and... Dad, seriously, Casey's gone. But I'm here, and I wear Royal Retros gear, too. Look, I'm wearing the Arizona Wranglers jersey you bought me. Number 11, Greg Landry. Let's play catch, Dad. No, you're Casey. Casey Perlman. You do these ads every week, right, Casey? Every week. These ads. Casey, so happy. Daddy-daughter day. Casey who? Mom, can you call CVS and see if Dad's meds are in? You're you. A lot of these stories are 20, 25 years old. Yeah. Older. You're going like every now and then I'll go through my old stories and I'll be like, Jesus Christ, that is the worst fucking writing I've ever seen in my life. Like you literally went, you dissected your old work. Yes. From a past life, really a past life and brought it back to existence. And you're reading through it. Are you more like, holy shit, man, I just own this. Are you more like, oh my God, this was terrible. Well, I, I, what I thought was, Oh my God, I'm glad I got better because my first two years were shit. Like, you know, I wrote this picture, uh, feature on wing piece. It was the most boring one dimensional piece of garbage. Now the one, the highlight was I got to talk to Mike Shanahan from the Broncos because he was the OC at Florida a million years ago. Right. So no, that was a highlight there, but you know, I got better over time. And I, I felt about, I felt better about myself too. So that's what I realized is like, Hey, in the end you were, you were pretty damn decent. You know, you were, you were on the edge of getting a beat maybe or getting a full time. And you, you could, you could have done this for sure. Wait. So the title of the, the headline is at peace out of spotlight. I would, yeah. wait, I would say one thing that's kind of funny about reading this book is this is no beef on anyone, but the headline writer spared no expense at cliches in these. Oh, head- right. Yeah. <laughs> so at peace out of the spotlight, former quarterback, Wayne peace is loving life after football, former Florida quarterback, Wayne peace. And your lead was Wayne peace knows how Danny Werfel feels. He knows what it's like to be the University of Florida's starting quarterback. He knows about winning and setting records. He knows how it feels to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. At one time, Peace, 34, was one of the most recognized college quarterbacks in the nation. Now he's just another face in the crowd. He's a husband, father, and insurance salesman, and he loves the anonymity. Wait, I think it's pretty freaking good. What's your beef with that? 
I don't know. It just seems kind of like he's a, he's just a guy, you know. I don't know. Wow, I actually think that's really good. I'm actually being oh, serious. Thank you. Wait, I'm actually surprised by this. 100. percent I think that's really good. And also, like that—that that was my first feature I wrote too. Really. All right. So you're going in to write about Wayne Peace. Are you nervous at the time writing a feature of like former Florida quarterback Wayne Peace? I didn't know him that well, so no, it wasn't that wasn't that hard. Right. It wasn't that hard. Yeah, he, he was a really nice guy. I mean, real down to earth. We, we sat in his office. He runs a state farm, or he did a state farm insurance agency. So I sat in his office, looked around, and like, yeah, yeah, that was it. I called, you know, a few of his coaches and stuff for the to round it out a little bit. But yeah, he was he was really nice. You wrote something I, I 100% agree with. You wrote another valuable lesson was learned here. While it's okay to have preconceived ideas about the story, it's best to go in with an open mind because you never know where the inspiration will hit you. And that actually is really true. You wrote, it could be a throwaway sentence, a knickknack on a shelf in the room, what the person had for lunch, you never know. During the interview, I learned the piece had played for current Broncos coach Mike Shanahan while they were together in Florida. Tom encouraged him, Tom, you're at Sports Center, encouraged me to call him for a quote. I was a little gobsmacked by the notion that I could call an NFL coach and talk to him. Wait, it's so funny. I want to keep going with this, but it is funny how you'll have people in your kind of vanilla life say like, Wait, you can just call. You can just call yeah, Mike. Right? Shanahan. Yeah. Wait, what? Exactly. Yeah. Call Mike Shanahan. It's like, yeah. I mean, that's kind yeah, of sure. Um, I was a little gobsmacked by the notion. After a quick internet search, I found the main number for the Broncos and called. I left a message with Coach Shanahan's assistant, and Mike called me back within 15 minutes. Bobby, how can I help you? Came his familiar voice over the phone. As soon as I mentioned Wayne's Wayne's name, the quotes came flying fast and furious. Wayne was the kind of guy he would want his daughter to marry, and so on. Pure gold. Over the years, I would talk to many famous people. And in my experience, there are several factors that impact your interactions. One, your question, subject material. Two, their mood. Three, your timing. Four, any outside scrutiny they're facing. For example, lawsuits. Basically, it was a crack shoot. I vividly remember NFL, NBA Hall of Famer Carl Malone glowering at me uh, because the first three things on my list exploded in my face. That story will come later. All right, what happened with Carl Malone? So I was doing this uh, big feature on NBA free throw shooting routines. You know, not really like, you know, earth shattering stuff, but um, I had, you know, I, I targeted him because he, they came to the magic like later in the year, you know, he, uh, I, I could go to Utah. I was, you know, I had the money. So um, I waited for him to come to Orlando to play. And um, so I get there and the PR guy, you know, lets me in and I'm watching practice, right? Which is NBA and it's, it's forbidden. So I'm watching the practice, you know, and it's Jerry Sloan walking, stopped into Malone to the pick and roll. You know, it's like watching Da Vinci paint, right? So um, practice ends, and the PR guy waves me over, and Carl's there, like unwrapping his um, wristbands, you know, his tape, and all that stuff, and he's, you know, like lathered in sweat. And I go, I go, hey, Carl, you know, I have a question for you. And he's like, hey, guy, can I get a break? You know, I was like, oh shit. So I, I backed away. Oh yeah, no problem, no problem. So then later on, I was I was too far away. Man, he had to call me back. He's like, you know, I'm ready for you now. Come on, you know, come back over here. So it was like, oh shit. I just fucked this all up. Um, and then when I asked the question, his eyes went like, you know, um, like a, a slit eye view, like, you know, oh boy, this crap again, right? So he's been asked this question a million times. And so all those things were just, you know, bad, bad for me. But in the end, he was professional. He was nice. You know, we shook hands when I left and he gave me some good quotes. But it was really, scary. it scared the shit out of me, though. He was, he was a huge dude, man. Was it his size that scared you? Or is it the, like I always say, like, his they're persona. The Cause they're the cool kids. We're the geeks. That's just a guarantee. Yeah. That's how it is. Absolutely. And I'm five, nine. So like, I'm nothing, you know, I'm like five, nine, one sixty, Right. So he's six, 10. I'm, I'm at his waist. Um, he's just a big dude. And his persona, you know, like the way he talks, it's like, you know, 
you can feel the ground shake, right? What's the most scared you've ever been around an athlete? I had to ask uh, Coach K a question at the tournament in front of like 100 people. That was pretty nerve-wracking. Yeah. Uh, I did that for one of our columnists. We only got one question, so the columnist asked me to use this question, and I did. You know, I didn't like, you know, flood my lines. Thank God. I was nervous as hell, though. Press conference questions always scare the shit out of me. I always, my hands right. are sweaty. I hate it. It's mm-hmm. awkward. It's uncomfortable. I hate everything about it. So you're not alone. Yeah, that was definitely, uh, yeah, nerve-wracking. So you're, you're going about your career, and you're getting a ton of bylines, and you're loving being a sports writer. But are you looking... Are you looking for more out of it? Like, are you looking for stability? Are you looking for, uh, eventually I want to write for whatever, blank, the Miami Herald or Sports Illustrated or something. Do you, what are you looking yeah. for this goes along? SI was always my, I mean, like, you know, you guys, like, you know, I mean, you know, I wanted to be Gary Smith. I think we all do. Um, and, you know, you and John and Lee Montville and um, Chris Ballard. I mean, like, I got SI, I got SI and we, we have something in common. I've also been published in SI three times for letters to the editor. So, Hey, we don't was, have anything in common because I never had a letter to the editor. So you, are, nice. you yeah. yes, I got three of them in there. It was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I really wanted to, you know, I wanted the beat. I definitely wanted to do NFL or baseball for a beat. Um, but we just didn't have the jobs. You know, there was not enough staff, you know, we were publicly owned and we were hemorrhaging money, you know, losing subscribers. So it was, not, it was just bad timing for me. And when did you know, like, when were you first, like, this is not sustainable for a long-term career for me? Yeah, it was, it was 99. So I, I, I quit writing to go to the desk to try to save my marriage and also, you know, get more stability, get better hours because, you know, when you're freelance, you're out all hours of the day and night, right? And you know, we get games every night or you got, you know, early cross country matches, weekends, you're working all the time. So, um, you know, 99, it was like, yeah, this is not where I'm going to be doing the rest of my life. I got to find a corporate job. And and I moved to Atlanta and that really changed my whole life again. You actually open the book after you get past the prologue and such with a bittersweet goodbye, January 15th, 2000. And you wrote, it's a dayline of Tampa. The crisp Florida afternoon was fading into evening as long, thin, pewter colored clouds stripped the purple sky. I just want to say, um, stripe the purple sky. Um, pewter is one of my favorite color adjective words yeah. When people say the dark clouds or the dark skies, I love the pewter colored skies. So you say the crisp Florida afternoon was fading into evening as long, thin pewter colored clouds striped the purple sky. From all outward appearances, it seemed like another relaxing Sunday in Tampa, except for the 65,000 plus fans who were watching their beloved Tampa Bay Buccaneers duke it out with the Washington Redskins in the divisional playoff round. It was a dramatic back and forth contest. The Redskins were leading 13-7, so the Buccaneers put together a gritty scoring drive to take a fourth quarter lead. And you go on and you say... Um, Back to the game in Tampa, I walked on the field to do some preliminary interviews, then trailed the players into the locker room. After getting all the quotes I needed, it was back to the press box to write my game story for the Buccaneer magazine. It was a side job I had been working for two years. In addition, I often helped with writing sidebars for the Tribune. Knowing this was probably the last time I had a press box access, I lingered a little, taking in the sights. The long white rows of tables populated by all the scribes, many seats with empty plastic plates and crumpled napkins, thanks to the constant food and beverages provided by the team. That's probably where a lot of sports writers get their pear-shaped figures. The press box was located in the club level, smack in the middle of the field on the 50-yard line. There were tall windows that opened, which was a treat on crisp Florida days. Banks of TVs in the back of the room showed all the games around the league. I would miss the opening announcement to every game day where they instructed you, cheering is not allowed in the press box. 
In my years covering the team, I witnessed only one person being thrown out after accidentally wandering in from the club level. Goodbyes were said, and I stuck a few cookies in my bag for the ride home. That's the most journalist thing ever. The elevator whooshed. The elevator whooshed me to the ground floor, and I walked out of the south end zone to my parking spot right along the street. I turned around and looked at the massive stadium, bugs darting around in the stadium lights, and felt a twinge of sadness mixed with a little spark of excitement. Yes, I would miss days like this when they pay you to watch a game and write down words about it. I would miss parking right in the front row, always having a good seat to watch the game, the camaraderie of the Tribune staff, access to the locker room, and the practice facility, and of course, the intrinsic satisfaction of writing a good piece. That's fucking beautiful, man. That's so good. Well, thank you. That's so good. That's, that's flattering, Jeff. Thank you. That hits my heart right there. Um, yeah. Do you miss it? It? Was tough. it was tough to walk away. Yeah, it was really tough. I did miss it. I, I missed the access. You know, I missed, um, I, you know, having your name in the papers, it's an ego strip, right? You know, it's great. But, I, you know, and I, I love being, knowing that I had a job that a lot of people couldn't do or, you know, maybe feel, you know, more exceptional than, you know, than some folks for some reason. I don't know. You know, I didn't have a degree in journalism and I, I learned it all myself. So I really, you know, I, I was proud of what I did I mean, at the end, you know. So when I look back at this book, you know, it's, I'm really proud that I got to where I got. And I'm, and I'm shocked and I can't believe it. Today, when I read the articles, it was like, I sat in the locker room with Derek Brooks for an hour and a half, just he and I, you know, just, just, just talking, shooting the shit, you know, and he was, he was amazing. You know, it's just uh, stuff like that. You know, you, you can't, can't pay for that experience, you know. Do you? Okay. Do you, um, do you look at your career and think I came into this with some talent or do you look at this career and say, anyone can learn how to do this if you bust your ass and decide this is what you want to do? I think you can be a good reporter, right? I think um, the writing is where separates, uh, you know, a, a good journalist from a, from a well-rounded writer journal in a journal journalist writer, if you will. Um, and I felt that, you know, reporting, it's always more important, you know, you know, you can have a boring story as long as it's well reported, but, you know, and then the, the writing part was a little harder. It takes more talent to write um, and organize your thoughts, I think. So there's a little bit of both, right? I think you can change trying to, to be a good reporter and write a game, game story, but writing features or writing, you know, um, investigative pieces, that's a whole different animal, right? Yeah. So diff- different kind of, uh, I think, you know, left brain or right brain, whatever, which one or whatever it is. I think reporting is a great equalizer. Absolutely. Yeah. I just think people don't realize that one thing, look how fucking hard we work. Like if you read my book, I mean, like I talk about how to cover football, you know, covering a football game, it was ball busting, man. You, you sat there and charted every single play yardage and you had to add it all up and, you know, and then you had to write your story. I mean, we busted our asses out there. Yeah. And it looks easy, right? From the outside, it's like, Oh, he's watching a game over there. And, and it's really easy to just write down those words, but no, you have to, you dig up all that data and process it yourself. Right. So, you know, it's a, it's a craft. When I moved out here to Southern California, I asked the uh, Orange County register if they'd let me string a high school football game just to do it. Cause I hadn't done it in so long. I thought it'd be fun. And I'm sitting in the stands. I brought my son. I'm sitting, there's no press box there. I'm sitting in the stands. And I said to someone there, mm-hmm. like, so do you guys, who keeps the stats? And they're like, yeah, no, that's you. And I was like, right. Oh, right. Crap. Oh, and like, I forgot how hard it is. It's like a, it's, Nonstop. You're not resting there. Yeah. And then, and then I got to where I could do it on the sideline. So I had like, you know, my clipboard with all my paper on it, you know, flipping it back and forth, right. Play by play, charting yardages. And then, you know, you get the, you get the color from the sideline. Right. So if you're on the sideline, you get all that color, you know, you hear the coaches, what they're saying, et cetera. And it's a lot of fun cover it down there too. 
Oh yeah. I um but it's hard. Yeah. I loved, loved fourth quarter high school football game, spend it on the sideline because you want to yeah. get the players before they get off the field and you just right. hear chatter. I love that stuff. Love it. Yeah, yeah. You hear all the, you know, like one of my favorite plays, I saw it happen right in front of me. And it was like, thank God I was down here because I heard the call and you know, work that in the story. You know, that, that's always great, you know, color too. Let me throw a loaded, loaded question at you. Answer it as you'd like. Mm-hmm. What is it to have ALS? What is it like? What is your life like? And what was it like to get the diagnosis? There's a lot of emotions there. So, you know, you, you go you go through your cycles of, oh, shit, I'm going to die horribly. You know, um, in, in my case, you know, I went through a long denial patch because I wasn't I wasn't going I wasn't um, declining quickly. Um, but, you know, you, you, it's it's hard on everybody. Um, I maintain my positive attitude because, you know, a, I have to, otherwise it's easy to, to be angry about everything um, and be for the people around me because they care for me too. And, you know, they're, they're watching me go through this. So it's hard for them. So, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult, but everybody has their damage. You know I mean? I've got a buddy with brain cancer. who's had it three times, you know, I've got friends with other maladies. So everybody has their stuff, you know, and this is, this is my stuff I'm dealing with. How did you find out? Oh God, I, I got tested. Like, I mean, I had a battery of tests, you know, uh, EMG, nerve conduction studies, um, you know, finally went to Emory Clinic, which is a, you know, renowned clinic here and yeah, got the diagnosis. So that, that was like, you know, uh, six years ago, seven years ago. Yeah. And you were, were you just having trouble, like the kind of cliche? Yeah, my, my left arm started to go, um, started to get weak. Like a lot, I lost the muscle and then my right arm and then my legs. So yeah, once you start losing the muscle, it's, that's a serious one. You should go get that looked at. You know, they, they thought it was maybe a, a bad disc in my neck at first. So I went through that whole process and they ruled that out. And then it was like, okay, well, it's either one of the big ones like Parkinson's or, or ALS or, you know, MS or one of those. So not a good place to be. I've really never talked to anyone about that. I have a very, very good friend of mine who has very debilitating MS and um, yeah. we talk a lot, but when you receive the diagnosis and it's confirmed that this is a diagnosis, Mm-hmm. people always say, oh, you have to maintain a positive attitude. You have to maintain a positive attitude. It seems much easier said than done. Oh, yeah, it is. It is. How do you do it? Um, you know, I got my kids. Um, I got my wife. I've got an amazing group of friends. Um, I like life. You know, I like living. You know, um, I, I was lucky that I got to travel the world before I got sick. So I've seen the places I've wanted to see. I mean, I want, I want to see more. But, you know, I've, I've been to Rome. You know, I've been to Paris and London. You know, I've been to places I wanted to go, right? Which really helps me reconcile a lot of that because if I hadn't done a lot of it, it would be harder. You know what I mean? But I feel pretty good about, like, my life has been really active. And that's like my next book is all the jobs I've had. So I'm working on that now. Oh, wow. um, so, yeah. And, 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 and then writing helps me as, as well. Um, you know, interaction with people. Working is a, is a tremendous support. You know, being able to work you know, and provide for the family and, you know, have that interaction with coworkers, you know, that's what life's all about, right? Is the people you meet. So that's where I, I try to grasp onto. I had a guy um, who I knew pretty well who had AOS and he, I think the thing he disliked, the mo- not the most, but the thing he really disliked, he didn't like the sympathy. Like he didn't like people feeling bad for him. He struggled yeah. a lot. Do you, do you have that yeah. as well? Um, not really. No, no my, my, my friends, you know, I've had it so long. Like my friends are like, you know, geez, you're going to die yet or what? No, I'm kidding. They don't think that. No, but I've had it for so long. It's like, you know, 
Um, we're, we're past all that stuff right now. You know, new people meet me and they're like, yeah, you know, it sucks. But, you know, I don't get a lot of that, really. You know, I, um, the people I work with, you know, they're, they think I'm very able, which always is a great compliment. I get that a lot. You know, it's like, you know, you're such a, you know, you're, you're, you're able and you're a great, you know, you, you, you know, you're, it's great to work with you and, you know, you contribute to our business. So, you know, that means a lot to me as well. Now we sit here, it's, it's 2022. You haven't been a sports writer in a long time. <laughs> Did being a sports writer impact long-term the way you watch sports? Can you sit? Absolutely. Does it, I, how? Um, I am way more analytical. Um, I don't get upset when they lose, you know, so I, I watch the bucks every week. You know, I, when we moved here, I paid for the Sunday ticket um, for, you know, like a dozen years. And my wife was like, every year you sit there on the couch and you yell at the TV, how shitty they are. And you still watch them every year. You know, I was like, yeah, that's my job. But um, I'm more critical. And a lot of times, you know, I'll be saying something like, oh, I noticed this trend. And then the announcer will say it right away. And my wife's like, every time you do that, I was like, sorry, it's just, it's in my brain. But yeah, I, I watch it differently. Absolutely. Yeah. More analytical, you know, and I, and I, I even, you know, think about how I would propose the gamer, right? It's like, oh, how would I write this? I always think that. Yeah. Wait, it's a permanent, that is a permanent disease. I just want to say. Um, Absolutely. Yes, it is. I was in a hotel the other day and Moneyball was on, right? Oh, I love that movie. Yeah. Okay. Now that's fine. But let me just say. Oh, I saw your tweets. Yeah. You were like, you had all those great characters there. Well, I covered the A's. I was covering a lot of A's yeah. at the time. And it's like, all right, it's great that you think Scott Hatterberg saved the A's, but like maybe no, no. Zito, Motor, the Hutchins, pitching they had was Chavez, Tejada, Jermaine Dye, Billy Koch. Like, yeah. And my wife's like, I'm not watching sports movies with you. I can't do it. You just suck. And I think that's about right. being a sports writer, you know? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. My wow. wife's the same way. She's like, you know, it's no too much sometimes. I'm like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry, dear. Let me ask you a final question. You do this book, you work your ass off on this book. You make it this thing mm -hmm. when it's done and you have this completed copy and here it is. It came out a couple months ago. What did it mean to you? I have been famous for not finishing big projects, right? <laughs> I'll always have the best intentions of like, I'm going to write this book. So when I sat down to write this book, um, you know, I told myself, you're going to finish this one because you have to, because you're, you know, you're doing it for the, for the boys. That was my driver for that. And then, um, you know, when I got, you know, you know, I had starts and stops, you know, I had writer's block for a while or, you know, I thought, is this, is this any good? Is this, is this book worth anything? And, you know, I kept going, but I wouldn't let myself get ahead of myself until I finished the book, right? I wouldn't look at like, you know, cover design or look at like editing or, you know, I, I wrote the book first. So it was on a big Word document. And when I finished it, I cried. Um, and I, that was really cathartic. You know, I just felt really good about what I've, I've done. You know, it's like, all right, if, if, if I die tomorrow, I've got a manuscript in my hand. Right. And, and I've, I've done it. I've always wanted to write a book and I, and I did it. So, you know, good for me. But then the hard work began of, you know, editing, refining, you know, um, and then designing. And I loved all, I mean, I really enjoyed all aspects of it too. It was just a lot of fun to, to, to get in there and, learn, you know, about, you know, bleed and all the print things. And, and I, you know, my editor was great. She was, you know, um, I had pretty, pretty clean copy. I was pretty happy with my copy, you know, it came out pretty good. So yeah, overall it was, um, one of the best things I've done in my life. Did you self-publish? I know cause it says RGM yeah. publishing. You self-publish the whole thing. Absolutely. That's me. Yeah. My, my name is Robert Joe Michael Garrett. So 
I just want to say, when I was a kid, my dad self-published a book, Conquering the Corporate Career, and he invented a publishing house. He called it Kimberly Press. Yeah. He designed a logo, this open yeah. book. The whole thing, just like you did. You're basically my dad, yeah. 2022. That's awesome. Ah, oh, man. Yeah, so my uh, designer, he's a old high school friend of mine. His name is Michael Hallberg, and he uh, designed my logo for me. Yeah, but you have to have a publishing company to publish, you know. So right now, if you go to Amazon, it's there. It's um, I, I get about two bucks a book from Amazon Yeah, because they take all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's on Amazon and Audible. Um, I did the audiobook myself, so I recorded the audiobook, and it's on Audible as well. I just love it. I love everything about this. I think, first of all, it's awesome that you, quote, unquote, did it for your boys, but you did as much for you. And that seems very clear. Like, Pretty you much, did yeah. You, which is totally fine. Like, yeah. And, like, you busted ass. You took the initiative. It would have been much easier not to do this book than to do the book. You know, like, you could have been like, oh, I'm just going to, here's my clips. So if my kids ever want to read this, you can read the clips. But you did something hard. And, like, you have a full-time job. I just think freaking... One of the most amazing things I've heard in this podcast. I just love it. Oh, thanks, man. That's really flattering. Thank you. With that, I would say, I appreciate you joining me on my podcast. Yes. Thanks for having me. Really. This is, this is a very um, surreal for me to be on the the phone with you. So thanks for having me on here. I really really appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Robert Garrett, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Robert on Twitter at RG underscore bang on drums and by Stringer, a sports writer's memoir, wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I rely on word of mouth. Also, my next book, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, drops on October 25th, but it's available for pre-order now. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.
I want to thank today's guest, Ruby Kramer, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Ruby on Twitter at Ruby Kramer and read her work in the Washington Post. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. And a reminder, my next book, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, comes out October 25th and is available for pre-order now. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.